Thanks, Brooke. Thanks for muscling through a still recovering lung capacity. I always enjoy when you're able to lead worship. A couple public service announcements I must make, because I forgot to make them earlier. Public service announcement number one is we are getting into sickness season. In fact, we've been in sickness season. Flus are going around, coughs, colds, whatnots are going around. So if you come and you feel sick, that's fine. Just don't go shaking people's hands. Don't go hugging them. Definitely don't go kissing them. I know we did the Holy Kiss sermon a couple of weeks ago. Don't apply that one. Keep your sicknesses to yourself. Words to the wise. And if you're afraid about being sick, it's totally fine to say, you know what? I'm not going to shake your hand today. I still love you, but we'll talk this far away. <laughs> and that's fine. No one will be offended. We want to keep our germs to ourselves. We want to spread the love of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, but we keep the germs to ourselves. That's public service announcement number one. Public service announcement number two uh, really doesn't apply to most of you, uh, but for those who are w wondering, if you ever try to message me with Facebook Messenger from today onward, you will not find me. Okay? So, most everyone has my phone number. If you don't have my phone number, you can get it. And that's how you can best contact me, by phoning me, giving me a text, or you can email me, that sort of thing. I am canceling, deleting my Facebook account. It is done. It is gone. I am over it. Okay? Okay. There you go. <laughs> you all should be too. All right. And if you want to know specifics of why, we can talk sometime and talk about all the specifics of why. It has nothing to do with politics. It has a bunch of other stuff to do with other stuff, though. All right, into the sermon. Now we've got public service announcements one and two over with. Last week, I explained what I am in the process of doing. This is the second of two weeks on Thanksgiving. Last week... I talked about how I'm thankful that the church is a family. And we talked about what that means. We talked about how we should live because of it. And if you were not here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. So you can get caught up on what's going on. Uh, during that sermon, I also briefly mentioned that growing up, all of the holidays we celebrate, especially the big three, Resurrection Sunday, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, were all distinct for Easter, we celebrated the resurrection. For Thanksgiving, we celebrated Thanksgiving. For Christmas, we celebrated Jesus' birth. And ne'er the twain came together. They were big, solid walls built up around each of these holidays. And then I grew up. And I've departed from that tradition much to the chagrin of the rest of my family and much to the chagrin of the town of Neely when I put up my Christmas decorations way too early. Though the daughter of the person who lives next to me says she loves it every time I put my Christmas tree up and she's, she's celebrating silently in her car because she doesn't want to be stoned by the rest of the community. <laughs> so, it's a Thanksgiving sermon. Thanksgiving sermon. My clicker's not working. Did you get off of the program, PC? No. Oh, it's not on. Ha! What do you know? be helpful if I turned it on. There we go. 
now it's working. All right, okay. It's a Thanksgiving sermon. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Go eat a bunch of food this week. Talk about all the ways that God has blessed you. Laugh, cry, have a great time. But in the midst of this Thanksgiving sermon that I'm about to preach today, there is a festive mix of the holidays in there. Please forgive me. Last week, I talked about, my sister's like, no. Last week, I talked about how I'm thankful that the church is a family. This week, I'm thankful that the church is incarnational. It's incarnational. As many of you know, sometimes I like to throw some academic stuff into my sermons. So this is one of the sermons that's going to be a little more academic than normal, but hopefully we'll have a good time and have a great application through it. But before we jump in, will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you, the creator of the universe, look down on your sinful creation and said that you wanted to have a relationship with us. So you sent your eternally begotten son down to earth to live among us in everything that we might know you intimately for all of eternity. It is truly an amazing thing and forgive us for how we have gotten used to that concept. And it doesn't affect our hearts anymore. The tears of amazement have stopped to flow and we check off another thing from our yearly schedule. Lord, teach us to remember you again and to be in awe of you so much that our hearts and our lives changed to reflect you. Lord, you know we need that. So please help us. Help us to understand and to live. As I'm up here, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Let's talk about the incarnation. During Advent season, when we celebrate Christ's coming, the steps up to it, we are celebrating the incarnation. Incarnation is that multiple syllable word that literally means taking on flesh. The theologians way back in the day pulled it from the Latin translation of John chapter 1 verse 14, which the Romans, this is the English, this isn't the Latin one because very few people here know Latin. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That beginning, the word became flesh, in Latin is the word incarnated. Jesus, the word incarnated. He took on flesh. But the word incarnation has more meaning than just its literal definition. If we lived 2,000 years ago and we knew Latin and that was the language we spoke, we would talk about incarnate this and incarnate that, and it was just an over-average, run-of-the-mill word. But we, who are followers of Jesus Christ, they take that normal, average, run-of-the-mill word, and we put a whole bunch of meaning to it. At least we should. The Holman Bible Dictionary expands the definition of incarnation even more. Now, I'm about to read a quote from the Holman Bible Dictionary, and it is a dictionary, which means they use a whole bunch of words that we normally don't use and probably don't need to be there. But just because I wanted to, 
Here's the Holman Bible Dictionary definition of incarnation. The incarnation refers to the affirmation that God, in one of the modes of his existence as Trinity, and without any way ceasing to be the one God, has revealed himself to humanity for its salvation by becoming human. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is the incarnate word or son of God, the focus of the God-human encounter. As the God-man, he mediates God to humans. As the man-God, he represents humans to God. By faith union with him, men and women, as adopted children of God, participate in his filial relation to God as father. Not very often do we have the opportunity to say words like filial. It's a really fun word to say. It's a mouthful. Everything that he said, the Holman Bible Dictionary said, is true, but it is a mouthful. So more simply put, the incarnation means that the preexistent Son of God, the one who always has been and who always will be, became man in Jesus. The incarnation. We might say that fact very complex, like the Holman Bible Dictionary, or we might say it very simply, like what I just said, but do we understand? it? Is it just a truth that we check off in our minds and say, yeah, 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 we know. Okay, yeah, fine, moving on. But do we understand it? Before Jesus was Jesus as we know him, before he took on flesh and dwelt among us, he was the eternally preexistent son of God, part of the triune God, the Trinity, dwelling in heaven, abiding in the throne room of God. Scripture makes it very clear what that state was like. We know that in God's presence, there is no sickness, there is no decay, there's no death, there's no sin, there's no depravity, there's no weakness, there's no change. We know that God is all good, he is all love, he is all justice, he is all righteousness. We know that he is all power, we know that he knows all things. We know that he is all sufficient and he lacks nothing. So when Jesus dwelt in that state, it's almost too simply to say he lived in perfection because it boils it down so much. Yes, that's true, but our minds can't fathom what the word perfection actually means. So we have to take some time to branch it out and look at all the different scope of what does it mean that Jesus lived in perfection. We read the different accounts of the prophets seeing visions of the throne room of God where the Son of God abided. But these accounts don't give really a just description because the prophets could only describe what they saw and what they understood. And when a human, a created being, sees into the spot where the eternally, eternal God dwells, we cannot fathom it. But these prophets did the best they could to write down what they saw, but the descriptions are less than the actual thing. Listen to how the prophet Ezekiel described what he saw in the throne room of God. He says there's these living creatures and spread out above the heads of the living creatures. In Ezekiel 1, 22 to 28, he says, spread out above the heads of the living creatures what, was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, these living creatures, and each had two wings covering its body. 
When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings. And then there came a voice from above the vault, over their heads as they stood with the lowered wings. And above their vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking. He saw the glory of the Son of Man, and he couldn't take it. It caused him to fall on his face. John in Revelation gives a very similar description of what is going on in the throne room of God and what God, Jesus looks like in all of his glory. Can you imagine what it was like up there? What it is like? Can you imagine what Jesus experienced for all of eternity? And that was Jesus' environment that he lived in before he took on flesh. He looked at all that was around him and all that he was, and he left it. He left it to come here. We have a hard enough time leaving home on Sunday mornings to come to church. And Jesus left all that, put on flesh, and he put on all that comes with it. He left the glories of heaven to live in our muck and our mire. He experienced our sickness. He experienced death of loved ones. He experienced temptations of sin. He experienced heartache. He experienced weakness, decay, beatings, sweat, tears, pain. Can you see the contrast of the incarnation? He left it all to live among us. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter two. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Christ left heaven and came to us that we might have a relationship with him that lasts forever in paradise. He left it all for us. Why would he do this? Scripture says he did it out of love. A man by the name of John Perkins writes this, God is holy and he is just. He is life, he is light, he is love. 
when we try to understand people's actions, whether at a crime scene or just in everyday life, the most important thing to look for is their motivation. John 3.16 tells us that because God so loved the world, he sent his only son to save us. Love is what brought God down from heaven and generated the incarnation. Love was always God's motivation, which is why it must be ours also. The Apostle John wrote this in John 4, 1 John 4, 7-11. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friend, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus loved us so much that he left the glories of heaven and joined our muck. And the amazing thing about this love is that he did it when we didn't love him. Scripture declares us that we are God's enemies, running in the opposite direction, not wanting to have anything to do with him. And God looked at us who spit in his face and said, I love that person. I love you. John writes in John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor human decision or husband's will, but born of God. He came to those who didn't want him, to those who would not receive him. This is the gospel. A.W. Tozer writes something, and I can't word things the way A.W. Tozer words it, so I gotta read what he says. He's an older writer, so his wording is not necessarily the way we would speak today, but follow along. He says, what brought Jesus Christ to die? The scriptures record, thou visited him. Well, why did he visit us? Was it that he might carry out the eternal purpose? Yeah, but that's not the way to look at it. He visited us because we were a fixture in his mind. He came for us as a mother wakes in the morning and runs into the room to see if the baby is all right. It was love that brought him down to die. God's anxious, restless love was incarnated in human flesh. This accounts for the character of Christ and for his attitude towards people and his tireless labor for them. This ultimately accounts for his dying for them at last. Our Lord's greatest pain for us compelled him to come down to earth. Calvary was a pain. The nails were painful. And the hanging there, perspiring in the hot sun with the flies, must have been a painful, awful experience. But one pain was bigger than the other. It was the bigger pain that drove him to endure this little pain. And the smaller pain was his pain of dying. The bigger pain was his pain of loving. To love and not be loved in return is one of the most exquisite pains in the entire repertoire of painfulness. So Jesus came, he lived, he loved, and he died, and death could not destroy that love. It is still a fixture in his mind. The gospel The incarnation is that Jesus left all the glories of his home in heaven and he came and dwelt in the muck surrounded by people who hated him all because he loved them.
That's the incarnation. But that's not the last word on the incarnation. After Jesus died and rose again on that fateful day, he appeared to the disciples and he said this to them. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Jesus had an incarnational ministry. Therefore, we are to have one as well. We get to take part in that redemptive work. We don't die so that someone else can live. Jesus did that once for all. But just as he came to us, we get to go to others as well. We are called to leave our comfort zone, our building on a hill, and enter the community, loving those around us so that the gospel can be shared. Not just loving, but loving as Jesus loved. Those who are enemies, who want nothing to do with us, who are living in muck, in sinfulness, in depravity, we are called to go to them. The person who we want to bypass, the neighbor we said, oh, our kids are never going to play with, we are called to go to them. We're called to love the neighbor, as Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the parable that we know. A Jew is beaten one day, he's ignored by the wealthy, He's ignored by the political leaders. He's ignored by the religious leaders. And finally, a Samaritan, his enemy, comes and has pity on him, loves the beaten up man. And Jesus said in the same way, we are called to love our neighbors. We are called to reach out to those who are hurting, who have been beaten up, stripped, and left all alone. Our neighbors are not necessarily the ones who live right next to us, though they could are and could very well be, but they, they are those who've been ignored by upstanding citizens and faithful churchgoers. There are those who've made us, who've been made to feel as if their lives don't matter. We're called to have incarnational ministry in our community. I read a quote to you by John Perkins. Here's another one. He's a leader in conservative racial reconciliation. He writes this, as I've continued in my Christian walk, I've come to understand something else about being a witness for Christ. It's not just about the telling the story. If we're going to help others understand who Jesus is, our own lives must reflect his character and love. Our lives should bear witness, not primarily to how much we love God, but to how much he loves us and how our hearts have been turned because of his deep love for us. Our lives should show that his deep love for us brings great joy, even in the midst of tribulation, that he would reach down and pick up somebody like me or like you and show his love for me and then give me the privilege of sharing that love with others. That's God's miracle. That's incarnation. Jesus was incarnated so that we could experience God's love. Now we are called to live and minister incarnationally so others can experience that love as well. We get to share in the pain and suffering of those around us so that in doing that, we can show Jesus Christ in a way that nothing else in creation and no other way could they experience it but as we join them in that pain. That's a little theology of the incarnation. But what does that look like today? Before we can look at today, we need to take a couple steps back. We need to step into our time machine. Anyone asleep right now? No? Okay. If you're not asleep, I need you to pretend like there is a time machine door and you are going to close it. You're going to go... Can you do that? You're not going to do it. Please, come on. Do it. Not Okay, one more time. Come on. 
And there's some people like, I'm not going to do that. And I could keep doing it until we peer force them to do it. But that would be not right. Okay. Let's look what the incarnational ministry looked like in the early church 2,000 years ago. Jesus died. His apostles have been preaching. They're slowly dying off. And no, those, it's called the church fathers, are leading the church. One of them, his name is Tertullian. You know he's old because he's got only one name. Tertullian writes this. He says, it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many. Of our opponents, see, they say, how they love one another. And they say it like it's, a, it's a, like a bad thing. Why would someone love someone that much? They must be nuts. Back then, people saw Christians are weird because they're loving everyone. They visited the sick. They cared for the needy. They adopted the unwanted. They lived their faith in an active way among the community so that their community would want to turn to Christ. Another old guy, one named guy, his name's Ignatius. He wrote this. Keep on praying for others too, for there is a chance of their being converted and getting to God. Let them learn from you, at least by your actions. Return their bad temper with gentleness, their boasts with humility, their abuse with prayer. You don't hear politicians come out, stand up and say that these days. The focus of evangelism back then was not bringing the lost to church because that rarely happened in that society. No one, why would anyone go to church? It was a pagan society. The focus was bringing the church to the lost. A textbook called The History of Christianity that was written over 100 years ago records this. During the outbreaks of plague at Alexandria, Christians at this time tended the sick and buried the dead when nearly everyone else had fled. In fact, the Christian lifestyle itself was a very, very powerful influence in evangelism. In a society where kindness, honesty, and personal purity were rare, Christians who lived out these virtues were sure to attract comment and often serious inquiry, which was the case. Man, uh, about 50, 100 years after Ignatius, his name was Justin Martyr. Uh, and he wasn't, his last name, his name was Justin, and they tagged the name Martyr on there, not because he died, but because he gave testimony. Martyr literally means testimony. And he was the man who said, I'm going to spend my life giving testimony about Jesus Christ. And he saw that the emperor of Rome at that time was doing an initiative to persecute Christians, throw them in jail, kill them, all sorts of stuff. And he said, I'm going to do something about it, Justin Martyr did. So Justin Martyr sat at his desk, and he started writing letters to the emperor, the guts of the guy. I mean, this guy, the emperor, is wanting to kill Christians, and Justin said, I'm going to write letters to this guy. So he did that. He wrote letters to the emperor, and he said, I want to explain to you why you should not persecute Christians. He did not explain the theology of Christianity. He said, Christians are the only people in your empire who show love to everyone and take care of everyone. And what he wrote to, the, to Caesar, he said, I dare you to find anyone who will say a bad thing about a Christian in your empire. Could we write that to our president today? But Justin Martyr could. 
Because in that day, Christians believed that their witness was going out in the community and doing good and showing love through their lives. And the emperor took Justin Martyr up on that dare and he stopped the persecution. Incarnational ministry. The early church were lights in the midst of darkness. And that model of the church coming and then going was used for most of the past 2,000 years, up until the mid-1800s. In the late 1800s, actually, the focus, instead of the church going out, started shifting to bringing people into the church to share the gospel. We lived as Christians in the church, and we invited people into the church to see how we loved one another and what the gospel was. It was a time where all of America was religious, and it was the thing to do. If you wanted to be high in the social status, you went to church. And so when someone invited you to church, you said, okay, I'm going to go, because it will make me a better person in the community. Sunday schools and Bible clubs were formed to start bringing people into church that way. In the, late, in the 1990s, churches started going to what's called seeker-sensitive, and we could talk about that sometime if you want to, but they create an environment where the lost would want to come to church and feel welcome. As, as America started becoming more and more secular, the churches said, oh, well, we need to do something to make the secular people want to come back in. And so they start changing things. And that worked for a time, maybe, but society has changed even more. Well, many people are spiritual, and today there's a lot of spiritual questions are being answered, asked. The New Age movement and other sorts of paganism is, is rising as people are having all sorts of spiritual discussions and they believe in God, but they can't define what that is. They're spiritual, but they're not religious. And they're not, wasted, they're not concerned about wasting their valuable time by coming to church. There's so many other things that are pulling them in all sorts of different directions. Goodness, if Christians who are followers of Jesus Christ and who owe everything to him won't regularly attend church, why would a non-Christian think it's worth their time? And so they don't. Many in America, as I said, are spiritual, but they're not religious, and they're definitely not moral. What was written about the age of the Roman Empire could be written about America today. Kindness, honesty, and personal purity are rare. That could be written about Neely, Nebraska. In a spiritual darkness around us, we have the privilege of shining a light in a way that is very similar to the early church. We get to show our community that we are the people who reflect the character of God. That we are the people who have hope and love, not because we stay in a building, but because we leave it. The culture's not gonna come into this building. We're gonna try to keep doing things to bring them in, but they're not going to come. We have to go to them. Incarnational ministry says we get to imitate Jesus and go out. If we stay in this building and just do things in this building, the lost world will never see our light. So how do we as Calvary Bible Church fulfill the call of God 
to have incarnational minister in our community. The first way is to know the needs of the community. We have to know the needs of the community. Where do you live? What, we're a church that where a lot of people drive from a lot of different communities. So think about where you live. Where do you shop? Think about where you work. Where do you hang out? What are the needs of those communities? Do you know them? And if you sit in your seat and you say, you know what? I don't know what the needs of my community are. The really deep needs. That means you need to start going out and getting to know those needs. Jesus came to earth because we had a need. Humanity was lost and needed a savior and there was nothing we could do to earn it. We had to give up and say, Jesus, I need you. And then he saved us. He came to earth because we had a need. Whenever he entered a town while he was here on earth, he looked around and saw the needs of those around him and he healed that person and gave that person sight healed the leper, he fed 5,000 people, he saw the needs, he met the needs as he called them to follow God. If we're, called, if we're going to follow the ministry that Jesus set out for us, we need to know the needs around us. We need to know the emotional and physical needs of the communities that we live. We must know them. So what are some of the needs in your communities? Think about it. But it's not enough to know those needs if we don't go out and meet the needs we must minister to them. Every Christian should find a way to serve in their community and help with those practical needs. If we just meet together on Sunday mornings in the safety of the church building and we quickly go to the store and then go back to our home and quickly do this and then come back to our home and never meet anyone, never interact with them and get deep in relationship with them, if we never be the hands and feet of Jesus, we'll never be able to fulfill the command of Christ. It won't work. So, we help out with the mobile food pantry. We say we're going to take some time out of our busy schedule to be the light, hands, and feet of Jesus. During winter, we shovel our neighbors' driveways and sidewalks. In the fall, we rake leaves of the elderly down the street. If we're an elderly person, we befriend our neighbor, even though we're not sure maybe they... I don't know. I don't like them. We befriend our neighbor. We get to know them. We figure out what their needs are. We bake them cookies. We pray for them. We bake them cookies again. We do something. And when we go out and we meet those needs, serving the community, we can't pick or choose the people that we want to serve and the people we want to love. Christ came to his enemies. Christ came to those who would spit on him and showed them love. In the same, we are called to love those who we would not necessarily want to. It's political season. That means if you're a Republican, you've got to go out and love a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, you've got to go out and love a Republican. That's going to be hard. Oh. But we are called to imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. So we know the needs of the community. We go out and serve. And finally, we be distinctively Christian. We have a choice when we're out in the community. Remember Justin Martyr. When he wrote the letter, he said, I dare you to find someone who can point a bad finger at a Christian. We have a choice in our community how we act and how we speak as we're being incarnational. In the early church, people were able to see a blatant difference between those who are followers of Jesus Christ and those who are not by how they acted in the community. They pursued holy living in public and we should do the same. And when we do and we show that love and that holiness, we have a choice in explaining why we do what we do. Are we gonna take the moral route and say, you know, our actions are good for society, and, you know, I love you, and everyone deserves love, and blah, 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 blah. Or we're going to do something different. 
about 10 years ago, I had some Muslim friends. And those friends asked me what I thought about homosexuality. And I explained to them my view on homosexuality from the Bible. Uh, and that's a sermon for another day, but the Bible clearly says that homosexuality is not correct, it is a sin. There we go, I did the sermon for the other day. But I told them what the Bible said. And they looked at me, and he said, I, I get you believe that, but I want to hear you explain homosexuality from, from, from apart from the Bible, from, from the morality based on culture and that sort of thing. And I looked at them in the face and I said, I can't do that. Because everything I believe and everything I think is based upon my faith in Scripture. It, it, it confines what I do and how I act. We as followers of Jesus Christ, need to be honest, boldly honest, every single opportunity that we can to say why we are living and acting and ministering the way we are that is because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what the Bible says. It is because of Jesus that we are doing this. Why are you shoving my sidewalk? Because of Jesus. Why are you raking my legs? Because of Jesus. Why did you just make me cookies? Because of Jesus. Jesus is what it is. We minister to others so they can know him through us. Incarnational ministry takes time. It does. To have incarnational ministry, we have to look at our schedule and balance our time and say, you know what, I'm going to say no some, some things so that I will go and get discipleship at church, as I talked about last week. I'm going to say no to some things so that after I get discipleship, I can go out in the community and build some deep relationships and meet some needs that are there that no one else is going to meet except for me. I'm going to say no some things. I'm going to balance my time so that I can live as a church together in discipleship, and so I can live as a church together in incarnational ministry. How are we doing as we enter this holiday season where there are a lot of needs around us? How are we doing in being the church of Jesus Christ? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us so much to send Jesus to come and live among us. It is truly an amazing thing, your incarnation, that you would leave all that amazing awesomeness to come in the midst of our pain and suffering and not just bleep in and bleep out, but live 33 years here among us. Thank you for that amazing gift. And thank you for the gift of your salvation that we can turn to you in faith, not having to do anything, but turn to you in faith and believe. Lord, we are great, grateful for that. Forgive us for how often we stomp on your amazing gift by saying that our lives and our desires and our priorities are more important than you. Forgive us for stomping on your amazing gift, for saying that we would rather do our own thing but than share your love to their neighbor Forgive us. And Father, I ask that you would restore us back to being who you've called us to be, that we would be a church that is on fire for you this holiday season, that the words out of our mouth would continually point people to you because you, Lord, are worthy. You are worthy of all honor and glory and power today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Thanks, Father. Well, if you'd like to stand with me one last time.